You want the good news or the bad news? The bad news, this will be my least entertaining sermon since I started here. No call in from mom, no really, you know, intriguing video from Hollywood, no good jokes. You want the good news? Today is football day. <laughs> Unfortunately for you, this sermon is three hours long, so you might miss kickoff. But uh, today I'm going to be preaching from a passage that's actually very, very difficult. As a matter of fact, I haven't heard many sermons on it, so I can't copy from anyone. Uh, it's a parable of the marriage feast, and I've titled the message, Should We Bring Anything? And the idea behind it, you ever know, you know how you feel when you've been invited to a dinner party or over to a friend's house, and what's the question you ask? Should we bring anything? And normally, what's the answer? Well, not at my house, it's not. You're going to bring something. No, I'm just kidding. But usually people say, no, just bring yourself and have a good time. And so I want to talk about the idea of the marriage feast and the parable. And just to make sure you guys understand what a marriage feast is. Okay? It's not just a bunch of people getting together like, you know, how we kind of do today as a reception, you know, after a wedding, you get together and either you have a full spread dinner, you have finger food, you know, uh, or something like that. It's not like that. The marriage feast is the biggest possible celebration that a man could throw in his lifetime. I'm not even talking about the groom and the wife. I'm talking about the father. And in this parable, we're going to lay out for you, if you look at this picture, this is a great kind of summary of the picture. If you see there in the back, you see some people that kind of look a little bit ragged, a little homeless. There in the back, they're saying, can we go in? And you see the servant of the rich man going to other rich people saying, will you come to the feast that I invited you to? And they're saying, no, I'm busy. And that's kind of a good capsulation of this parable of the marriage feast. Now, let me explain something to you on a more wonky type of theological seminary level kind of thing, all right? Whenever you're looking at a passage of Scripture, if you really want, I mean, you can just read it and think, you know, just kind of read it and be lazy with it if you want. But if you really want to understand what the passage means, you have to have a firm grasp of three aspects of every passage, especially parables. Number one, you have to understand the historical implications. Historical basically answers the question, what about man? What did he do? Why did he do it? So you have to understand the historical application of every passage. The second application you have to understand is the theological. The theological answers the questions, what about God? What did he do? Why did he do it? The third application of every passage is the devotional application. What about me? What do I do? Why do I do it? Do you understand that? So whenever I go and start to break down a passage to prepare a sermon for you to hear on Sunday morning, I have to work really hard to make sure I fully grasp the historical. What about man? What did he do? Why did he do it? The theological. What about God? Why did he, what did he do what he did and why did he do it? And then I have to understand the devotional. What about me? What do I do? Why do I do it? You cannot have the devotional 
It's foolish to think you can apply the devotional if you don't understand the theological and the historical. That's why it's important that when we study Scripture, we're not lazy with it, but we take the time to understand those three concepts. So I'm hoping from now on, whenever you take your time to read Scripture, you'll start thinking those three ways. Historical, theological, devotional. With that in mind, let me start off this sermon with a little bit of a background about the feast circuit. In this time, there was this kind of understood social hierarchy, hierarchy of feasts, right? And most of the time, you would never go to a feast that you could not throw yourself. And so if you were invited to a feast, there is an understanding, which is this. Whatever this feast costs, I need to be willing at some point to throw one just like it. And so whenever somebody would put on a feast, it was a really big, important thing. And listen, most of the time, these feasts were not 10, 15, 20, 50 people. They were hundreds. And if you were really rich, maybe thousands. They were a big deal. The feasts were, I mean, look, there was no Seinfeld. There was no Monday night football. There was no NBA. There was no Walking Dead. You know, some of you guys, I could go watch that show, please. Give me a break. All right? So there was none of these shows on TV. There was no movies. There was no iPods. There was no music. There wasn't anything like that. The feasts were the social circuit. It was what people did. And it was a very important social aspect. The better feast you could throw, the higher it brought the standard for the next person. And so there is a big social significance of the feast. As a matter of fact, in this passage, Jesus was at one of these said feasts. He was invited to a pretty significant feast. And he's there with some disciples and with all these guests. And understand, many times, especially in the religious circles, these feasts, they would try to have this pseudo-spiritual undertone. Yes, there'd be a party, a lot of food, a lot of wine, and all these other things, right? All that stuff happening. But at the same time, people would try to act a certain way. A very big facade. And so the historical application of this passage is the feast circuit is a very important, prominent aspect of New Testament life at the time. Jesus is at this feast. And the reason he was invited to this feast is because the religious leaders who had a lot of money wanted to catch him in some sort of mistake. So they could kind of condemn him. Because Jesus was developing a little bit of a following and they didn't like it. So they're trying to trap him. Hey, come to this big celebration, Jesus. Come on. We know you're going to like it. And, you know, Jesus was not a person who was looking to try to get rich in the world. But Jesus wasn't afraid of going to a feast. There was a lot of money spent on it. He went knowing full well the only reason he's there is because they want to catch him saying something, healing on the Sabbath, or something like that. And when we get there, what we find out in the passage, and we read this in, in um, Luke chapter 14, verses 1 through 12, 1 through 13, I'm not going to go through that whole aspect of it. I'm going to skip that part. But basically, what we see here is there's hypocrisy exposed all over the place. I mean, there was a seating system, like, you know, when you came to a feast, even within the feast, you wouldn't go to a feast unless you could afford to throw the same type of feast yourself. But even in that, there were special seats for special guests. 
And Jesus says, look, when you go to a feast like this, don't assume you should have the best seat. You should take the lowest seat. And then later on, when the host says, why are you sitting in that low seat? Come up here. Jesus says, because then you won't be ashamed when he asks you to move out of the big seat. And he goes on and he says some other things. He talks about, um, you know, the Sabbath. He says, is it, is it okay to heal on a Sabbath? If your ox had fallen into a ditch, if your son was sick, would you want him healed? And so he's kind of pointing out all these hypocrisies that the religious people that are throwing this feast have in their lives. And he talks a little bit about how the system of guests are chosen. You know, the idea that, that uh, you would invite only certain types of people to your feast because you wouldn't want to go to a feast that a poor person threw because, you know, that's beneath you. And so he's pointing out all these hypocrisies, right? And it's pretty amazing what happens next. Now, it's the first time in my life I've had to put these on during a sermon. But the passage is long and I had to use very small font. So I'm not getting older, it's just small font. It's not my fault. Okay. All this happens, and I'm going to pick up in Luke chapter 14, verse 15. Let's go there and take a look at it. It says, When one of those who reclined at a table with him heard these things, he said, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. In other words, blessed are those who are invited to a feast in heaven. And But Jesus says, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time, and, and as the time of the banquet came, he sent his servants to say to those who had been invited, Come now. For everything is ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I've bought five yoke of oxen. I have to go and examine them, make sure they're okay. Please excuse me. Another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servants, Go out quickly to the streets. And lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and lame. And the servant said, sir, what you have done has been commanded, but there's still a ton of room. And the master said, go out to the highways and the hedges and compel them to come in. That my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. So this is a pretty fascinating passage. As a matter of fact, it's quite offensive. Let's talk about the wedding invitations. Remember, this is the biggest possible celebration a man can throw. And this party that Jesus is talking about in this parable, understanding the historical application that I just laid out for you, right? knowing it's the biggest possible celebration, the first thing I want you to understand about these invitations is that the religious, the religious elite are all invited. That's how it starts, right? And none of them want to come. But they're all invited anyway. They're invited to come and be a part of this. And then later on we see that he begins to invite anybody and everybody he can. And he still can't fill the house. So that's the wedding invitation aspect of this feast. The second point I want to bring to you is the wedding day. Now here's what happens. Maybe a year or maybe two years in advance, a long time in advance would these invitations go out. It's not like a week, hey, listen, I'm throwing this big, huge, massive feast on Wednesday. Can you come? No, it's like, 
I'm throwing this feast in a year or two years. Mark this day down. It's very important to me. I'm inviting all of you. It's the biggest possible party I could ever throw in my life. It's the most important day. Make sure you're there. I want you there. I desperately want you there. So the wedding day comes. And what the scripture teaches us in verses 18 to 20 is the honored guests are called to attend. But they refuse. See, they would have never received the second invitation to come had they not already committed to be there. If anybody should have been able to respond to this invitation, it should have been these people. If anybody could have said, yes, I'm coming to the party, it should have been these people. They knew plenty of time in advance. They had the warning. They knew the date. They had a year, maybe two years to plan for it. And they still decide to make excuses. Like, for example, my new field that I just bought in verse 18, my field is more important. Listen, nobody in those days would have made the investment of a field without first carefully investigating the property because real estate transactions themselves took several years back then. It wasn't like you had a 30-day closing. It took years. And so the idea, listen, I know you invited me to this party a couple years ago. I can't go because I just bought a field. I got to go investigate it. That's a bogus excuse. It's interesting Jesus uses that example. Another one says, listen, my new cattle are more important. My new cattle, I've got to take a look at this, right? Because I got these oxen and I want to make sure that you understand, I've got to make sure they work well together. No one would buy oxen without first making sure they worked well together during those days. Again, this is why understanding historical implications of scripture is important. Jesus is putting out excuses that people are making that are lame and bogus and ridiculous and everybody in the room knows it. Then there's another excuse that's given. My own wedding feast is more important. To have scheduled your wedding on the same day as one that you had been invited to was a huge insult to the host. Because of the nature and how far off these events were scheduled, this was something that would have to be done on purpose. Do you understand what I'm saying here? These weddings took years to plan, and they were done years off. And for you to say, well, listen, I'd love to come to your feast, but I decided to get married on the same day. I just took a wife. I've got my own wedding feast to go to. These were small communities for the most part. And everybody knew what was going on. And what Jesus does is he lays out for all these people, he's saying, listen to me. These are the excuses that these people gave, and everybody at the party that he's at right now knows these excuses are lame. And so next we come to the next part about the wedding day where the dishonored guests attend. Matter of fact, the scripture uses the word in three different translations, compels them to attend. Verses 21 to 23. And so basically what happens is Jesus says, this party is being thrown. All these people were invited. When finally the day came, they all made excuses and none of them showed up. So the master goes to his servant and he says, I want you to go out and find people of low social economic standing. What did I share with you earlier about these feasts? 
A poor person would never, ever, ever come to a feast thrown by a rich man. They would never do it because they know they could never return the favor. And so understanding what the social expectation was about these types of feasts, that's why the servant had to go out and compel them, bring them. Listen, go out, make sure these poor people, these people who are downtrodden, the outcast, the disaffected, the disenfranchised, those types of people that nobody really wants to reach out to, go out, compel them, get them to come into the house. So now he's opened up this invitation to everybody. The rich who don't want to come, the poor who don't feel they're allowed to come, and he opens it up for everybody and he compels the poor to come in. But why wouldn't these poor people come? Well, there's a couple of reasons. The first reason is they would never accept because they would ruin his reputation. We see that in Luke chapter 15, verse 2. You can make a note of that and look at it later. But the idea behind it is this. They would be afraid to show up at this guy's party because if I show up knowing who I am, I'm going to destroy this guy's social standing in society. I can't have anything to do with his feast. I'm not good enough. And they would never be able to repay it. So that's the scene that Jesus sets in this parable of the marriage feast. Then something very frightening happens. There's an unwanted intruder. I'm going to go to Matthew 22 verse 11 through 14, which is a parallel passage to Luke chapter 14 and the whole marriage feast. It's kind of written in both places. Matthew has a portion about this parable that Luke does not have. And listen to what Matthew says. But when the king came to see the guests, remember the ones he had compelled to come in, opened it up to everybody, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. Friend, he asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, get ready for this, tie him hand and foot, throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. Whoa. Here's this feast that everybody's invited to and nobody wants to come. And he says to his servants, go out, get the poor, get the downtrodden, get the downcast, get the rejected, get the disaffected, disenfranchised, get all of them, bring them. And if they don't want to come, compel them, make them come. He's trying to get his house full, the scripture says. And then, once he gets the house full, he notices an intruder who is there in the wrong clothes. Reject a person that's been invited to a feast that everybody's supposed to come but nobody does? Look at the last part. For many are invited but few are chosen. What do we do with this? Why would he reject this person who came to this wide open feast? Because in this culture, 
The proper clothes for the wedding feast were provided by the host. You couldn't come in your own clothes. Should we bring anything? No, you can't even bring your jeans. You have to come in the clothes the host provides. And what type of clothing was that? Historically, white robes. You just get chilly in your spine, some of you that know Scripture. What does the Scripture say we're going to be clothed in in heaven? See, Jesus is a brilliant communicator, is he not? And he takes a historical application that everybody will understand and he turns it into a picture of the kingdom of heaven. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me in garments of salvation, arrayed me in a robe of righteousness, as a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest, as a bride adorns herself with jewels. Here's an example of the type of clothing involved in a wedding feast. Yes, we know how the bride is dressed today in white, but back that day, everybody that came wore white. And the host provided the clothing. So what do we do with this passage? What is the application that I give to you today that you can go home and say, ah, the wedding feast, cool. Because right now it seems like kind of a wonky seminary level kind of lesson maybe, right? It's kind of confusing. Some of you are nodding off. That's why I brought Pop-Tarts again for the students. When you fall asleep, starting to nod off, take a bite of the chocolate Pop-Tart. I can't afford to bring it for you adults. Bring your own Pop-Tarts. Just bring your own. So what's some applications that we can make for this? The invitation list to the kingdom of heaven's wedding feast is long. Matter of fact, he says, many are called. But no one responds to the invitation unless the king compels them to. I mean, if anybody would have responded, it would have been the ones that had two-year notice. No one can enter the feast in their own clothing. All our righteousness is as what? Anyone know? Filthy rags. Why would you want to bring those to a wedding feast? Let the host provide them. And you can't come thinking you'll be able to ever return the favor. See, if you think you can go to the marriage feast of heaven and think you can get your way in there and someday put together another feast that's just as good, forget it. Don't even bother to show up. If you think you can come in your own clothing, forget it. You're going to stick out like a sore thumb and he's going to throw you out. For the price for sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life, the robe of righteousness. So this passage has several troubling aspects in it for me. The first time I heard it, I was a junior in college, and I wrestled with it, I'm not kidding you, for four years. Some of you will hear it today for the first time, and you'll embrace it right away. Some of you will hear it, and you'll struggle for four years. Some of you may not be back next week. I don't know. But the part that really troubled me was the part where he cast that guy out that was in the wrong clothes. Isn't that kind of weird? He's trying to fill his house and then somebody's in there he doesn't want and throws them out? 
I'm going to read to you a couple of verses from an old hymn by a guy named Isaac Watts. While all our hearts and all our songs join to admire the feast, each of us cry with thankful tongues, Lord, why was I a guest? I'm not one of the elite. I could never throw a feast this big. I could never bring my own clothes. Why am I even invited to this thing? Why was I made to hear your voice and enter while there's room when thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come? Why was I compelled to be there? It was the same love that spread the feast that sweetly drew us in or else we had still refused to taste and we would perish in our sin. Wow. The marriage feast. So, what do we do with this? How do we go away with this today? What is the, the hook that I can give you to help you leave? Oh, that's what Pastor Joe was talking about. The first aspect is the clothes. If you think you can clothe yourself in your own righteousness and get a part in the wedding feast in heaven, you're crazy. You'll be tied up, cast out into darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. What does that mean? That means that your righteousness is not good enough. It's filthy rags. You could never adorn yourself in enough white to cover your darkness and your filth and your sin to be a part of that wedding feast. Number two, what the wedding feast parable teaches us is this. You can never repay it. You could never throw a feast like this because the price was Jesus Christ who shed his blood so that we could become white as snow. The third thing I want to give you to leave with this you should be in awe. You should be shuddering in like total shock that you were even invited. Because the fact of the matter is not only were you invited, but you wouldn't come. God went out of his way. Not only did he invite you, he compels you. He draws you in. He says to his servants, go out, bring them in. I want my house full. My hope for you today as we kind of follow this passage to its conclusion is that you would understand what a tremendous picture that the marriage feast is of salvation and the process by which God calls us he saves us he transforms us he clothes us in righteousness and invites us to a feast that we could never throw ourselves he does it all and most of us as we sit today, if you're a child of God and you enjoy the goodness of the feast of God in your life, the blessings that come from the Spirit and from the Word and from fellowship and all those things, as you enjoy the aspects of being part of the feast on a daily basis, as you await for the day when the Lord returns, as we just finished that series a few weeks ago, as you live in anticipation and excitement of seeing Daddy again, you should be awestruck by the fact, I didn't even want this. 
but he called me to it anyway. So Heavenly Dad, there are so many aspects of your calling that we don't know what to do with. And this parable is troubling, but it's also encouraging. First of all, God, we don't want to be the one who shows up at the feast in the wrong clothes. We confess you that we must be clothed in the righteous white robes that you give us through the work of your son on the cross. Our dependence is on those clothes, not our filthy rags. And secondly, Dad, thank you that even in the midst of my free will, you worked in spite of it and you compelled me to be a part of the feast.